Hey there. Before we get to the show, a reminder that you can hear live coverage of tonight's presidential debate on your local NPR station. Some of us from the NPR Politics Pod Squad will be on your radio. And as the debate is happening, follow our live fact-checking at NPR.org. And catch a new episode of the podcast tomorrow morning. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with another edition of Monday Mail, where we spend some time answering your questions about the issues that we see on the campaign trail and anything else you're curious about. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. As usual, you're hearing this on a Monday. But we're taping it a little bit earlier. So if there's any big weekend news, don't worry. We'll be back in your podcast feed sometime soon to talk about it. And speaking of Monday, the big debate is tonight, the first debate of the general election season. So let's start off with a question from Ryan in California. Ryan writes... So with the big debates on the way, what exactly does debate prep involve? I've heard they actually hold mock debate competitions with surrogate candidates and moderators. I wish so badly I could see who's playing Trump for Clinton or Clinton for Trump. How tough does it get? Thank you, my loves. Ryan. <laughs> Thank you for, for the fairness there. Thank you. Um, I think we all agree we'd love to see the mock debates, too. Yes. If they yes. hold them. <laughs> I, I, they might do as well as the hundred million people expected to watch the real thing. Right. So when it comes to debate prep, Hillary Clinton seems to be undertaking what is very traditional debate prep. She's got binders and briefing books. She's going through nuance of policy. She's holding mock debates. Donald it, Trump, very different debate prep. Donald Trump tends to wing it on these kinds of things. He is very confident in his ability to mix it up with whomever and, of course, has had the experience of being in many, many debates with many, many other candidates on the stage all firing at him. So the challenge for him is to change that dynamic to only have one focus on one other candidate, and it is a woman, which sometimes can change the dynamic. Some people feel, I feel, that the one moment that he had in which he probably came off the worst in all the Republican debates was when he was called out by Carly Fiorina, who was the only woman who was running uh, in that whole large field. And one time then she was on stage with him and he had made a crude remark about her and her appearance, she called him out on it. That was a bad moment for him in the debate that was held in September of 2015. I'll say that what we know about how they're preparing for the debates is what they tell us about how they're preparing for the debates. And Maybe that's exactly how they're preparing, but it definitely fits the story that they want to tell about themselves. It's part of setting expectations for the debate. And so when Hillary Clinton's campaign tells me that she's taking it very seriously and she's studying very hard and and that they're preparing for multiple different types of Donald Trump's, that is projecting the image that they want to project. Meanwhile, Donald Trump says, you know, I just want to be me. I want to be natural. He probably is actually doing a fair bit of debate prep, but not... Uh, but underplaying own, it purposefully but, you know, exactly. so that you don't expect him to do much better than he winds up doing. Right. The expectations game. But, you know, one of the people who apparently is advising him in this preparation that he says he's not doing is Roger Ailes, 
who was, of course, the father of Fox News and uh, has been separated from that corporation. And was a political aide who used to do debate prep. And did debate prep for Ronald Reagan, including in 1984. He also was the man, Roger Ailes was, in his late 20s, who gave us the new Richard Nixon in 1968, giving him a total makeover and making him acceptable to American voters in a way he wasn't in 1960 when he lost. In the past, we've seen mock debates to the point where John Kerry in 2012, who played Mitt Romney opposite Barack Obama in their debate prep, said that he had to have something of an exorcism of Mitt Romney after the debate because he had lived with him for so long. And in 2000, one of the great anecdotes, Judd Gregg, the former senator from New Hampshire, he played Al Gore. And he said that his wife was getting so annoyed with him, channeling so much Al Gore, that when she would get in the car, he would have tapes. When she would turn the radio on, they were all tapes of Al Gore. That's how he would prepare it. And Paul Begala, who was a former Clinton aide in the 1990s to the Bill Clinton White House, was the man who wound up playing W in debate prep. And he said one of his regrets was not picking up on Al Gore's deep sighs (sighs) because he wound up doing it in the debate in real life. And he hadn't caught it and he wished he'd had. Those sighs heard Al Gore because they came across as arrogant and superior. And uh, George W. came across as surprisingly able, surprisingly coherent, and surprisingly likable in comparison. Next question is from Jalmer. He didn't say where he's writing from, but wherever it is, thank you for writing. He asks, hey, NPR politics, love the show. How much different will the first debate be now that Donald Trump is nearly tied with Hillary Clinton in the national polling averages, as opposed to about a month ago when Hillary was up five to six points nationally? Will doing better in the polls help or hurt Trump in the first debate? Thanks and keep up the great work. Jalmer. If you are playing the expectations game, then having the polls closer make the expectations a little closer for the two candidates as well. If we all were thinking that this was becoming a runaway for Hillary Clinton, as some suggested in August, then the expectations for Donald Trump might have been lower. There's also the question of personality and how personality reacts to challenge. Maybe Donald Trump feels as though the race is tied. Maybe he feels like he's already winning. Which way does that make him more aggressive? It's not clear It's not a straight line progression from the suggestion of him being ahead to knowing exactly how he's going to react, respond and behave. You know, the polls have certainly tightened. The state polls have tightened, national polls in some respects. But to Jalmer's point about five or six points, if you look at the latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, Clinton is up six to seven points in that poll. So it depends on what you look at. I will say nothing irks me more. in the run-up to presidential debates (laughs) than this expectations game. The word expectations in politics and in jobs reports gets under (laughs) my skin more than anything else because for me, there is one bar. There's the bar whether or not you cross to be president. Not, well, you're not really that great, so let's see how, you know, let's lower the bar for that person because they're not, you know, up to the job or not thought to be up to the job. That, That to me is always a stylistic thing. However, to check myself a little bit, these debates are often style over substance. You know, the idea is supposed to be substance, but think about all the things you remember from any past debate. It's always something stylistic. Or it's a subjective judgment or a subjective reaction to something somebody has said. And when you can come back at it later and the sociologists can do their surveys and say, you know, we don't really think it moved that many votes honestly in the end. And maybe it didn't. But the impression 
that we come away with after we've watched the debate is usually of one or two moments, one or two psychological moments. And depending on, and this is where I think the expectations do matter, depending on what you were expecting going into the debate, you may be surprised pleasantly or unpleasantly by something you see from one of the candidates. There you go. All right. On to our next question. It comes from Allie in Anchorage, Alaska. She writes, how do the debate moderators go about writing and or collecting the questions for the debate? Do the campaigns get a peek at the questions or topics in advance? Thanks for taking questions. Sincerely, Allie. First off, heck no. Do the candidates get a look at the questions? Do we get a look at the questions before we answer the podcast questions? Oh, yes, we do. Well, yeah. So the, the, re- the reason for that is so that we can actually be more prepared and actually answer your questions. Um, but I mean, as somebody who used to help moderators uh, do questions for debates. You start with people like me who nobody knows their face or name for the most part. And then they go and do lots of research into the issue positions that these candidates have. You whittle it down. You try to figure out how you can sharpen a question so that that person can answer the question, not wiggle out to their talking points. It's a very difficult thing to do with politicians because they're primed and ready and they know how to do that. And with a candidate like Donald Trump, it's particularly difficult because his positions tend to be jello-like in some ways, and he is prone to attack moderators. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's a, a tactic that's used. It's often used in Republican debates as something of a crutch. Okay, moving on to another question from Steve. He writes, we have a friendly wager in our family as to whether or not Clinton and Trump will actually shake hands at the debate. What do you guys think? Steve. I think if she offers to shake hands with him, that he ought to shake hands with her. And the reason I say that is because there have been a few instances in the past where male versus female debates have gotten a little awkward on this point. Uh, In Texas, a gubernatorial race back in 1990, when Ann Richards was in the process of getting elected governor of Texas, she was actually behind before the debate. And Clady Williams, who was the Republican nominee who was leading, refused to shake her hand at the debate. He literally literally said, no, I don't think I'm going to shake your hand. And the state was largely scandalized by that. A lot of men who had planned to vote for Clayton Williams decided that that was just not what a Texas gentleman should do. What did he think? She had cooties or something? Well, they had had they had had some pretty cross words. <laughs> Ideological cooties. They had, they had had a lot of cross words, and Ann Richards was not sparing, and she had a, a sharp wit, and let us put it that way, <laughs> and many people felt that lash, and Clady Williams was kind of, his ears were burning by the end of the debate, and he didn't want to shake her hand. By the way, Hillary Clinton has dealt with this herself in debates already. If you remember the famous 2000 Senate debate between herself and Rick Lazio, who was running against her for that Senate seat, he made an awkward gesture by walking into her space at her podium to try to make her check out a policy platform that he wanted her to see. And it was, you know, she held her space and it, she didn't know how it was going to play out. And later on, it looked badly for Lazio because he was seen as being bullying uh, toward a female candidate. And I think that body language between the two of them is going to be interesting to watch. I do think they'll shake hands. Yeah. It won't be that big a deal. I yes. think they will shake hands. I would hope there will be no limp fish. These are these are political people. They know how to shake hands. He's a businessman. She's a politician. She's former secretary of state. They know how to shake a hand. And she was at his wedding, right? So. I, I, it's not as though they're on. It's not as though they haven't been introduced. Steve, thanks for the question. On to our next question. It comes from Colleen in Florida. 
My name is Colleen, and I just moved to Nassau County, Florida from Orlando about a month ago. And I was wondering why everyone tells me my vote counts less now as an independent, now that I no longer live in the coveted I-4 corridor. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the show. Aw, thank you, Colleen. And we should explain what the I-4 corridor is. Well, the I-4 corridor is a a section of counties that run from along the I-4 highway from Tampa to Orlando in Florida. I will have to say, though, I have to blow up this myth. There is no swing I-4 corridor any longer. That went out the window in 2012 because it has become so much more Hispanic than it had been in previous years, that it actually leans much more heavily toward the Democrats now, and it's no longer the swing section of Florida. So for someone telling you to have left someplace that was formerly a swing area, your vote doesn't count as much, that doesn't make any sense. And by the way, it wouldn't have made sense anyway, because everybody's vote counts the same. It's in not Florida. like some random assignment of delegates. No, it's not like saying that your vote counts more if you live in a swing state like Florida Correct. or Ohio, that it counts more than somebody who's voting, say, in Alabama or California, where the outcome is pretty much predetermined. In Florida and Ohio, every voter's got a real chance of tipping the balance in an extremely close election. Now, if she told us she moved to Nassau County, Long Island... That'd be, be a totally different story. <laughs> but Colleen... <laughs> totally different. You are in a swing state. Your vote matters a lot. So moving right along. Next question comes from Mary in Hamburg, New York, or is it Hamburg, New York? I think it's Hamburg. I think it's Hamburg. Oh. It's in Germany anyway. Well, yeah, but who knows? It's upstate. It's Hamburger. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> She's writing from the Buffalo area. Um, Mary writes, it is my understanding that 37 states offer early voting. Not sure why this is necessary. I always thought that the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November was designated election day for the entire country. What is the advantage of voting early and who is eligible to do this? Thanks. Well, maybe it's not surprising that she's actually saying that she's a little surprised that people get to vote early, given that she's in New York, because New York is one of 13 states that actually does not have early voting. So for her, this is sort of a foreign thing. There are 37 states. I will say just for technicality's sake, 34 states offer early voting in person. Another three, Washington State, Colorado, and Oregon, mostly vote by mail and people are getting ballots early and can send them in whenever they want. They also have some drop-off locations. Those are the numbers in the lay of the land. And part of the purpose of this is to make it easier for people to vote. Absolutely. And in fact, possible for some people to vote, because if you have had the experience, as millions have had Including in some me. states, of coming to the polls and discovering long, long lines that require hours of your staying in line, uh, that makes it impossible for some people because they have to be other places, either work or picking up their kids or taking care of sick relatives. It can be extraordinarily trying for people to vote if there aren't enough polling places to accommodate all the voters on voting day, which is an increasingly common experience as localities cut back on their budgets and states don't give them extra money to provide additional voting places. Well, the budget stuff does become a big problem in some of these. You know, the idea here is to reduce voter frustration and to increase participation. 
The problem has become in recent years that you have mostly Republican states where they're trying to curtail early voting times. And their argument is that, uh, you know, you're not getting all the information that you could have uh, going into Election Day. So they don't think that people should be able to vote so far out from the election. Plus, they say it costs a lot of money to keep polls open for an extended period of time, uh, regardless of the fact that you know, you might have longer hours on Election Day or longer lines. So it is six-ish weeks away from the election. Not that anybody's counting. And we're talking about early voting. So when do people actually start voting? Well, interestingly, some places have already started voting. Uh, not a huge number of places, but uh, one place, Wisconsin Rapids, uh, Wisconsin, for example, the state's allowed to do this by municipality. They started voting on September 19th. Uh, they allowed early voting to start. Other places have already gotten mail-in ballots sent out to them, and they're able to submit those ballots as they wish. And uh, on Friday, you had several states start to vote. Vermont started voting on Saturday. So a lot of places starting to trickle in to start to do this. A lot more places do it in October uh, than in September, but some do. But so literally some people voted before the first debate. For some people who want to be done with this election, they already are. That's right. That's right. In fact, they you just can tune it out. You can just feel the electricity emanating from Vermont as voters are lining up to the polls. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Mary, for the question. Next up is another recorded question. This one from someone in our own backyard, Brittany from Washington, D.C. Let's hear it. Hi, NPR. My name is Brittany. Hello. And I am a nonprofit lobbyist working just down the street from your headquarters in Washington, D.C. Both Mr. Trump and Ms. Clinton have denounced the decision in Citizens United, which allowed unions and corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money on political activities. My question is, what effect, if any, has this had on this campaign, and what could it mean for the Citizens United decision after the election? Love the show. Thanks so much. Bye. You're welcome so much. So we know where both candidates at least stand uh, on this. Uh, Hillary Clinton in her first week, <laughs> as you well know, Tam. As I know. Uh, uh, you know, while she's in the heat of that primary battle with Bernie Sanders, announced that she would, uh, in her first 30 days, seek a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. So clearly something that a promise and a marker that she's put in the sand. And then she later said that she'd have a litmus test for any Supreme Court justice that she nominates to overturn Citizens United. And we should say that, number one, any constitutional amendment process takes years. We should also note that it's really not a surprise that anybody that she would choose would be inclined to overturn Citizens United. I think it's fair to say that that her position on Citizens United was clear from the fact that Citizens United was is essentially a case about an outfit that made a hit film against her. So she was the object. In Literally called Hillary the movie. Hillary the movie, yeah. as opposed to Hillary the hit film. The entire case proceeded from their animus against Hillary Clinton. So in that sense, it's not as though her position had been unclear. Now, when it comes to Donald Trump, it's much more muddled. Uh, he has spoken somewhat critically of Citizens United in the past. He'd said, he guesses from my standpoint, personally, I'd almost rather not see it. What does that mean? It's not an exact promise of what he would want to do. The other side of the coin here is that Donald Trump made a recent hire. He hired somebody to be his deputy campaign manager. That individual was David Bossie, who runs Citizens United. So if you're going to pick a candidate on which one is going to try to actually overturn Citizens United, Hillary Clinton's probably the one who would wind up trying to do that more so than Donald Trump. So back to her question, what effect, if any, has this had on the campaign? 
in the general election, it hasn't had as big an impact. I mean, Hillary Clinton obviously has a super PAC, Priorities USA. Well-funded. Is doing fairly well uh, money-wise. It's running ads and all that. But you haven't seen the same kind of impact, even that really the super PAC that was supporting Mitt Romney had in the primary in 2012. I think that super PAC, Restore Our Future, had probably the most impact of any super PAC Uh, able to move numbers just based on a deluge of advertising from week to week. Okay, moving on. Our last question comes from Tracy in Indiana. She writes, hi, y'all. Things are tense at my house since my husband and I are supporting different candidates for president for the first time ever. I will let you guess our respective candidates. We will be watching the debates, and I was wondering if you knew of any debate-specific drinking game that would ease the inevitable tension. Thanks for making this election season a bit more bearable, Tracy. I would just say pre-game. Who needs a drinking game? Just pre-game it. Well, well, there's the old Ted Kennedy debate game, which was mention the economy, do a shot. Well, I was going to (laughs) say, you can create your own bingo card probably for this. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. And you could tick through... However, half believe me, more. foundation, both of them. Big league, big big league. Yes, big not league. big league, not big league, but big league. Big league, winning, winning. winning. Um, wall. Oh, but you would be on the floor. Wall. stronger together. Yeah, make America great again. Well, I think we've got more than a bingo card. All right, I think we're already drunk. <laughs> Delete <laughs> your account. We're done. Okay, Tracy, that was fun. I, I think uh, there actually people will post bingo cards on the internet that you can probably Here find somewhere. Come. You don't have to count on us. Or maybe we will. Who knows? All right, that's the mail for today. A reminder to write us with your questions or record them and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We read them all. We'll be back with a new episode recapping the debate Tuesday morning. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Ron Elbing, editor correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 